Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm super excited for today's episode where we get a chance to talk to one of the least known and most impactful political leaders in the country. Way back in 2017, we can cast our minds back that far, when we were all really still reeling from the reality of a white nationalist in the White House, everybody was desperate for any signs of hope or encouragement that we could turn things around. And the first real progressive political victory in the Trump era came in Virginia in November of 2017, when Democrat Ralph Northam won the gubernatorial election. I remember, actually, we were with Susan's doctor getting her MRI results, which is always a nerve-wracking endeavor. And it's like, we get the good results from the doctor. And then I tell Susan, I'm looking at my phone. I tell Susan, looks like we're going to win Virginia. And I remember a doctor saying, we could use some good news at this point in time. And, you know, but Northam's win in that race really was a triumph of voter turnout in a battleground state as Democratic turnout increased by 300,000 votes over the previous gubernatorial election. And then knowing who was responsible for that increased voter turnout, I posted on Facebook that night, how is it possible that Tram Win is not a household name? And so we are happy to do our part with our little platform here today to try to let the world know about this incredible and important work that Tram and her team are doing in Virginia. They're truly on the cutting edge of what has to happen in America in the 2020s. And so for that conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang, who is a woman whose new mission in life is to become the publicist for the teen punk band, the Linda Lindas, whose song Racist Sexist Boy has become a viral sensation. Charlene, are you, are you done playing the song on repeat? How are you doing? And will you introduce our guest? No, not done playing it on repeat. It's also become like an earworm that I don't mind. Like I just right. find myself like, you know, actually like singing it out loud in the house and, <laughs> and but with my you know, husband kind of lifting an eyebrow like, okay, you've, uh, you know, been playing that a lot and been singing it a lot. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my daughter loves it. It's been a lot of fun. If people don't know about that video that's gone virally yet, please do check it out. Linda Linda's. They are ages 10 to 13. Um, something like that, uh, multiracial Asian girls. And I think there's a, a Latinx girl in that band and they're just fabulous a punk band that just got signed, by the way, because of all this instant um, popularity. So do check them out. So Steve, yes, yeah, speaking of rock stars and <laughs> badass punk rockers in the political sphere and Asian American women, I'm super excited for us to talk to our good friend, Tram Nguyen, I'm just so excited. I've been wanting to have her on for a while. And uh, just to let listeners know, she's the founder of the organization New Virginia Majority, where she currently serves as co-executive director. But as we'll get into more today, she's that and so, so much more. And as I continue to learn about her all the time, I'm always like, and she did that and she did that. And this is a young woman. I'm <laughs> just the sheer amount of work that she's put into expanding democracy in Virginia and continues to put in the work helping Virginia lead the way for the rest of the country is just truly inspiring. And like you said, I think it's just ripe time for her to become a household name, especially for those who follow uh, democratic politics and progressive politics and progressive movement. So just to give listeners a bit more background on Tram, she's one of the most effective and important political leaders in the country, as you said, Steve. She has done 
pretty much as much as any group or state in the country to turn the demographic revolution into a political revolution. Her work has served in part as a blueprint for Georgia and Stacey Abrams has twice turned to Tram to help her, Stacey, build the civic engagement operation in Georgia. So again, just, you know, I was trying to explain how Tram does so much more just beyond even her work in Virginia. But speaking of Virginia, over the past decade, Tram has spearheaded the work that has turned Virginia from being a conservative red, like red, red state, one that voted for 40 years straight for Republican presidential nominee. And that's every election from 1968 to 2000 to an increasingly reliable blue state where Democrats have won every presidential and gubernatorial election over the past 10 years. So for all of our listeners who think to themselves, and I'm one of these people, you know, such and such red state, that's just never going to turn blue. Never, never say never. And the, you know, Tram and her, her work and the people that she's worked with together to mobilize um, this change, they are evidence of that. She was the first employee of New Virginia Majority and has built that organization into one of the premier civic engagement groups in the country. New Virginia Majority now serves as the hub for an increasingly powerful voter mobilization network that includes nine chapters and hubs, an annual budget of $3 million, and has the ability to turn out 200,000 progressive voters of color. Amazing. Trem's personal story also blows me away and is so moving. We're going to ask her to talk a bit more about that today. Her family are immigrants from Vietnam, and she has worked to help other Vietnamese immigrants in the U.S. She has served as the director of Boat People SOS and has worked with their emergency preparedness and response efforts, where she organized tens of thousands of Vietnamese immigrants throughout the Gulf Coast whose lives were devastated by Hurricane Katrina. And before her work at New Virginia Majority, Tram advocated on behalf of natural and man-made disaster survivors around the country as a project coordinator for the World Trade Center Rescue and Recovery Program at Mount Sinai Medical Center. She helped secure federal funding for a health treatment program for rescue and recovery workers at Ground Zero. On top of that, she's a proud graduate of Barnard College and yeah, this woman, like I said, she's badass and she's done so much in such a short amount of time. Welcome, Tram. It's so great to have you on. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you, Steve. It's always great to be amongst friends. Uh, I'm thrilled that you made time. You know, yesterday you're in the thick of the election here. And so um, just to, to put your mind at ease, we're only going to deal with, you know, mild issues like solving the country's racial crisis. We're not <laughs> going to try to resolve cat person versus dog person divide in America on this podcast. So <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast. Exactly. <laughs> For sure. So why don't we, I just want to get into understanding a little bit better about the trajectory in Virginia, right? And so as Charlene was saying, right, you know, actually, Wikipedia has this thing, you can do a, a presidential election results by state, and it'll give you the numbers for that state. And there's a little arrow and that shows you the prior election. And so I started clicking the arrow. It was going back so many clicks in terms of when there was a Democrat had actually won the state of Virginia. And it really was LBJ in 64, right before we signed the, signed the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, the big part of the reason why I've been so excited about Virginia is because I genuinely believe, I think it's pretty incontrovertible, frankly, that Virginia is the cutting edge of going from a red to a purple 
to, I would argue, blue state now. So can you actually give us a more of a picture around what Virginia looked like before turned in 2008 and what were its politics like and, and, and what it, when you first stepped into this work? Can you kind of give us a picture of what that was like? Well, it was very conservative, as, as you all both have said, and as the history shows. Um, I remember when we first started to think about doing political work, especially in, among you know, what folks are calling the rising American electorate, right? Um, people of color, new Americans, immigrants, young folks. And in 2008, as we were sort of thinking about how to engage folks in the presidential cycle, I remember um, one of the first things that was handed to me was this report. And it was essentially a report on the political landscape in Virginia and how to win. And it talked about the Virginia Democrat and the Virginia way mm -hmm. and how they described the path to victory was really around organizing and turning out you know, the cowboy hat wearing, boot wearing, like white NASCAR loving, um, you know, white folks. And I just read it. I was like, well, that's not the Virginia that I know. I mean, right. it might have been the Virginia mm. that I grew up in. Right. But the Virginia that I know now is way different. And what would it look like if we actually started to to talk to people um, that, you know, might not necessarily fit or definitely don't fit that profile, but talked to people about issues that are important to them and why voting and why participating in our elections might actually matter in terms of improving their lives and the issues that they care about. And, you know, I came up the, the work um, through the lens of an immigrant, right? I think about my family and what they escaped in Vietnam and how similar it is to many new Americans, many immigrants who came to this country where their homeland um, was not a, you know, a place where political engagement was a norm, right? And so there was a lot of work, the starting place that um, we began to engage with new Americans and immigrants around you know, democracy and the political process and registering to vote and voting and what it all could mean um, was, it was really important and intentional as we think about how do we um, encourage folks to participate in our democracy as a, as a way to expand the electorate. I was wondering if you could briefly share with our listeners a little bit about your family history and your, you know, your personal history. I know that Steve had told me that there was a time when you weren't really sharing that much about it, but it, you know, as you've begun to do this work, you have shared more about it, but also how your family's history played a role in your decision to choose this path, basically getting involved with electoral organizing. Yeah, my um, my family came to the United States in 1981. They were a part of the second wave of boat people from Vietnam. So after the Vietnam War and the fall of Saigon, um, you know, lots of Vietnamese refugees fled and came to America. And, you know, you, I, I mean, I see images of April 30th um, and the fall of Saigon and people being like airlifted out of, of, um, out of the city. And at the time, my, my family was not so lucky. My dad was a high ranking naval officer and he was captured uh, mm. after the war wow. and was put into a re-education camp for seven years. 
Wow. And um, yeah, it was, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about that seven year period of my parents' um, lives other than dad was in a re-education camp. Mom was, you know, trying to survive, uh, raising two, two daughters, my two older sisters and, um, and the challenges that she, you know, she faced in terms of making ends meet and trying to just, you know, sell street food and, and all of that. And, um, and my dad eventually escaped with a number of his um, fellow prisoners. And um, because he had experience sort of out in the water um, during the war as a, as a Navy, he during the war, I think his his role was to um, was to navigate naval ships up and down the Mekong River. And he worked alongside the U.S. forces in, in that in those efforts. So anyway, so they they escaped, commandeered a boat, and um, set set off. Um, they didn't know where they were going to go. They didn't know what dangers lied ahead. But the one thing that they did know was that to stay in Vietnam would would essentially mean certain death, right? That there was there was nothing. My dad was not going to make it out of that re-education right, camp right. alive, right? Mm-hmm. So so they they did that. Uh, landed in Thailand in the Songkhila refugee camp where I was born. And um, soon after that, they got notice from the U.S. government that they um, were granted, you know, admittance into the, to the U.S. So here we are. We got, we came to America in wow. 1981. Incredible. And in all places settled in, in the South. Growing up in, in Virginia, in, in the South, in the 1980s, Oh, at what a was time, that, what was that like? I can't even I mean, imagine. I think about the Virginia that I grew up in right. and the Virginia of today, and it's like two different worlds, right? And mm-hmm. um, when I was six years old, my classmates debated in front of me whether I was black or whether I was white. Mm. Um, the very first time my sisters and I saw a swimming pool and we jumped in, everybody else left the pool and said, chinks, you know, run away. Mm. And they all ran away. Wow. Um, and racist sexist boys racist sexist boys yes and, and probably and, girls but yeah <laughs> oh man um exactly and and that was i mean that was the virginia i grew up in right like we went on field trips in elementary school where we had to reenact you know the slave trade right we picked mm. cotton we did like that the, oh virginia was so, so deeply mired in the past um, in its racist past, okay. frankly. I mean, we were taught that the Civil War was the war of Northern aggression, right? Southern, Southern pride. Southern, Southern pride. pride. I mean, there was so much pride around Richmond being the former capital of the Confederacy, and you'd mm. see Confederate flags everywhere. Um, and so you fast forward to today, and it's like, well, it's way more diverse than, it, than it's ever been before. You drive in Richmond up and down Broad Street, and there are so many restaurants and grocery stores that reflect like, uh, you know, so many different communities. And it's, it's so different. Whereas before, like, again, in the eighties, there's um, this tiny little house slash trailer that was converted into a grocery store. It was called Far East grocery store. And that's where my mom got all of her groceries. And now we have full markets where we can go. Right. Um, So it's just, it's a very different place. That's amazing. My my aunt, uh, Janice tells the story about she, her, my cousin Dale grew up in Virginia and she um, tells this story about when he was, it was in sixth grade, they had this program was, you know, music around the world. 
they had nothing about Africa. She raises this. And then they wanted my cousin, my black cousin, Dale, to sing Dixie. I wish I was in the land of cottons. Wow. So, so um what is it that you can share with us in terms of that your family's experience or your personal experience that got you inspired to to follow this path get into this path of working electoral organizing so in 2006 2006 2005 i'm getting old i know i think oh, you cannot you, turn, you said that i'm young but i can't 40 tram, remember it's all downhill from it's there. all downhill i'm like what well, year was that say that to me and <laughs> well I'll, I'll say this when i started at boat people sos um it, i was two weeks into my job there and I, I i started working there because i wanted to find a way to reconnect with my vietnamese um history and culture right like i'd mm. done so much work in other communities but i hadn't done a whole lot in the Vietnamese community and, you know, growing, I mean, part of it, you know, I'm ashamed to say, but, you know, I tried so hard, my sisters, my cousins and I tried so hard to assimilate, right. That we sort oh, of, hear like, you, you know, I did the try same. to hide our culture. Right. And it was kind of embarrassing. So a part of me was like, I want to, I wanted to tap back into that. So I started working at Boat People SOS and two weeks into my job, Katrina hit. And we, I, you know, I was working in our Falls Church, Virginia headquarters, and we kept getting phone calls and messages from the Houston, Texas branch office saying that, you know, we got to do something. Something's happening. There's lots of, there are lots of Vietnamese folks coming from New Orleans and they're, they're showing mm -hmm. up in our office, which was in the strip mall and off of Bel Air Avenue. And uh, the executive director of the organization came into my office and I was hired as a program manager to run the AmeriCorps program for, for the organization came into my office and said, I don't know what's going on. Um, you have emergency experience. And again, I was two weeks into my job. So I wasn't <laughs> totally mired in my program yet. So I was like, you know, they, they sent me to Houston basically and said, find out what's happening, find out what's going on. And that what was supposed to be a two day trip turned into two years. Yeah. Um, and when I set, landed in Houston and got, took a cab and got to the, um, the mall, the Hong Kong mall off Bel Air Avenue, for, when I walked through those doors, I think for the first time, I personally could imagine and understand what my parents and my two older sisters experienced as refugees. We saw families who lost everything, who were just, you know, they, they brought what they could from New Orleans, what they could escape with. Shopping carts were being used as um, cradles for babies. They were desperate for food, for water. And it was just thousands of Vietnamese folks, like on the sidewalks, in, in the mall, in, you know, in front of every storefront that they could find like some space. And the desperation that I could that I could see in people's eyes and I could feel in the air was um, like impacted me for like I, I can't even describe how it impacted me. So in those two years that I worked on that um, Katrina recovery program, it went for, you know it, it wasn't just Houston, Texas. Folks went to Alabama and Mississippi and even in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I ran this like four state. Um, recovery program 
And it was in that work when I saw what was happening, for example, in Biloxi, Mississippi, when the, um, when the local government there was so desperate to rebuild after the, the hurricane that they ended up, so at the time, casinos were only allowed to, to build on barges right on the water they weren't allowed to actually build their structures and their you know their properties on on land mm. and because the vietnamese fishermen in biloxi mississippi didn't return to their homes in time the local government biloxi sold their houses and oh their God. property to the casinos Jesus. like for like a dollar right and so then they just co-opted all of these communities and neighborhoods to to rebuild and that that was the first thing that came back to Biloxi were the casinos. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in New Orleans, in, in Plaquemines Parish, when they needed landfills to, as they were cleaning everything up, right, they chose St. Mary's, this neighborhood um, near St. Mary's Parish, and it was a Vietnamese neighborhood, and they just basically dumped a landfill at the end of the street. Because the issue bet. is that yeah. the community, you know, there were language barriers. Mm-hmm. Folks were not necessarily politically engaged. They didn't know how to advocate or organize. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's that was my first taste of, of of real like organizing. You know, people that have been so underrepresented and to fight mm-hmm. back. Um, so that's what we did. And you know, for two years, I you know spent pretty much. The entire time driving on I-10 between like all of the states and, you know, sleeping wherever I could find um, a place to sleep, living in the roadway in in Mississippi or, you know, at a uh, at a temple in in Alabama where where they had an extra room. And it just was my that was my life for two years. But in those two years, you know, the community was able to rebuild. We were able to force, um, you know, local governments to actually provide meaningful uh, translations and information to the community. We started turning people out to town hall meetings and city council meetings, and we started to really push back. And then at the federal level, um, the next thing I knew, and this was very strange for me as like a 24 year old, right? Um, I was, you know, testifying in Congress about what was happening um, to this forgotten community and worked with Congressman Honda to amend the Stafford Act to require, um, you know, language access during federal emergencies. Um, and, And so... I think, Charlene, to answer your question, that that was the start of it all, was oh, that, that personal connection. That is something connection. else, that story. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, no, I, so I want to see the you know, the next step of that, but just uh, before we get that, I just want to also reference for our listeners. I mean, Charlene, and this whole question of assimilation, right? I don't just want to gloss over that. I think it's something all people of color <laughs> grapple with in this country. Charlene, you wrote something on this, right? Oh, you yeah, I wrote something. an essay called I Tried It Being White. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we should link to that also. Yeah, yeah. we share that in common. But we share a lot of a lot of um, speaking for Asian Americans. There's particular Asian Americans who grew up in predominantly white communities. Mm -hmm. It's just very common experience. Mm -hmm. So why didn't even? I mean, we've known each other a little bit, um, Tram. I didn't even realize you'd had that. You were that fully immersed in the Southern. I didn't realize Alabama and Mississippi were actually part of your 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 experience and whatnot. So. New Virginia majority, right? I, mean, I heard in another, you know, podcast you were talking about you were the first person that went there. It was a fifty thousand dollar grant. So how? Well, what did you do? But also why? Why were you drawn to that challenge to come to build New Virginia majority? And then what was that like trying to turn it into more of a effective organization within the state? 
I think after seeing the power of using our voice to demand change and then to get the change that we wanted right at the policy level too, um, I was really hooked on that and wanted to see if there was an opportunity to, to do more of it. And um, didn't really know what that meant, to be honest, <laughs> and came across, um, I was burned out from disaster work. There's only so much of, you know, sleeping on floors and cuts and driving and also, frankly, internalizing a lot of the stories of, um, of the, the surviving families and, and their needs. So I started, you know, looking at opportunities and came across a job posting for program position that was going to help legal permanent residents become citizens and register to vote and to vote. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So I interviewed for it. And it was basically this new incubated project that eventually became New Virginia Majority. And it was, um, I think, Steve, as you mentioned, it was a $50,000 grant from the Mariah Fund. And I was brought on um, to take it on. We didn't know what what it will all look like. But I think given my experience growing up as as an immigrant in Virginia um, and also seeing such sweeping demographic changes in Virginia and then the coupled with the experience uh, after Katrina of organizing folks and, and winning um, change for them, I was like, well, let's experiment with this and let's see what we can do, <laughs> right? Um, and it was 2008, so it was like the end of 2008, seven, 2008 and there was you know in case folks forgot a pretty big presidential election in 2008 and um just a little (laughs) just just a little and you know folks were talking about you know voter turnout and getting young people and people of color to go out and vote because there's this charismatic candidate named barack obama on the ticket and can we get you know more people, um, a broader coalition of folks to turn out to vote. And so we did. I had no idea what I was doing. And if I could <laughs> do it all over again in 2008, I would do things thus. Uh, oh, oh, man, so differently. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I think I have uh, some sample lit from back in 2008 that, uh, yeah, uh, one day maybe I'll show it <laughs> to folks. Um, but we, we knew that it was really important, right? And in order to to really start to shift the political landscape, like we, we can't do it any other way but to engage and expand the electorate. Um, otherwise, we would never, it would, it would be really hard to win change for our communities. In 2006 and 2007, for example, when so many, um, so many of us in the immigrant community felt like we were on the cusp of getting comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level, especially because it had bipartisan support. Sensenbrenner carried the bill. Um, People marched in the streets, millions of people across the country, right? And we didn't get it. And a part of our analysis was we didn't get it because we we weren't exercising all of our political power and we weren't using every tool in our toolbox. It's not enough to to take to the streets. It's important to, right? Like that level of activism and and public support and and those calls to action are deeply important, but alone doesn't doesn't win for us, right? And so what would it look like to couple the activism and the base building and the community organizing with the electoral work? 
And if we tapped into the demographic changes in Virginia and we got more AAPI folks, more Latinx folks, more Black folks, et cetera, to turn out to vote, um, then these politicians would start paying attention to these constituencies in a different way. So that was the start of the journey. We've had a lot of ups and downs since 2008, but I think uh, we were very diligent in, in, in keep, in, you know, making sure that we kept going, even at a time when a lot of folks across the country um, and a lot of would-be supporters felt like the 2008 wave was an Obama wave and that there really wasn't um, a there there in Virginia. Right. I think for many of us who live here, um, who call this place home have, you know, wanted to prove them wrong because, you know, we've, we lived through these decades of change and we knew that, you know, we could accelerate that change if we were intentional about engaging yeah. with folks that make up the new Virginia. Yeah. That, that's actually part of why I wound up writing my book is that, because I thought it was obvious that Obama was the latest manifestation of this changes that have, you know around people of color becoming a bigger part of the of the population and then people start talking about oh it was, it was this unique thing to obama one off and i was all like no let me try to write something clarifying that let me ask you about the multiracial <laughs> dimension of the of your work right i mean actually i first heard i first heard your name from eddie morales when he was running latino engagement fund remember eddie's saying oh we're supporting different groups in virginia like uh new virginia majority is run by tram wind and i'm like I thought Virginia was a black state, right? Isn't that <laughs> the first place that black people were brought to in chains in this country? And so, uh, African Americans are obviously are a significant, uh, uh, just you know, certainly quantitative part of the population there. But you start out, you're saying more on the immigrant entree and angle, but you have expanded the work. So you can talk about that a little bit, but how you've been able to um, deepen ties and do more work with the, with the, in a multiracial sense. Yeah, when we first started the organization, um, I think, you know, I thought that we would be primarily a Latinx organization, especially, again, off the coattails of comprehensive immigration reform. And, you know, aside from the Black community, the Hispanic population, Virginia was the second largest minority population, right? Um, but since then, we have really grown to be multiracial, multiethnic, I think, in part, you know, as we think about statewide power, right? Um, we started in Northern Virginia, so I'll first say that. Uh, and as we started thinking about building statewide power and what it would take to do that in the expansion from Northern Virginia to Central Virginia and Hampton Roads, um, it, it became clearer, right, that in order to really change the political landscape and the, and the power structure in Virginia, that it would take not only organizing in this this geographic urban crescent as we call it but also it would take intentional organizing and power building among um the the people of color that make up the majority of um you know of this urban crescent so so we have um over the years really been intentional about trying to to build this multiracial unity among our community members um and it it you know, in part, it's, it's, it hasn't been hard because the, the issues that 
black and brown people of faith, right, are, are very similar. There's so much intersectionality um, in terms of the challenges and the issues that we all face and what we're trying to achieve um, in terms of creating a Virginia that, you know, works for all of us, that doesn't leave anybody behind, that believes in a, in a social contract and a role of government. Um, and opportunity and equity and all of those things. So as we grew, though, I will say, as we grew into a multiracial organization, um, the last couple of years, we've been trying to ensure that we don't lose our foothold in um, the uniqueness of each community. And so in addition to, to, you know, New Virginia Majority as this large statewide power building organization, we have in the last four or five years incubated um, hubs or projects that have its that have you know that have their feet um, in each of the unique communities. So there's uh, Virginia Block, which is the Black Leadership Organizing Collaborative. There's ACE, the API Civic Engagement Collaborative. The Virginia Student Power Network, um, Tenants and Workers United, and and this is to make sure that we um, we also don't lose the uniqueness and the identity of each of these constituent groups as we still continue to build uh, multiracial multi-ethnic power. Um, we bring everybody together once a year in a large like People's Congress where you see hundreds of our member leaders from across the state come together. Um, and you know they talk about and they share their stories, their personal stories, and they build relationships and connections with each other, which has been, I think, um, transformative in how we build the, this multiracial uh, coalition. Yeah, so one of the, one of the things, just for our, our listeners may not be following all the ins and outs of, of Virginia. And so just to kind of reiterate, reiterate this point we, we mentioned up top. So Virginia voted for the Republicans reliably for 40 plus years. Since 2008, and particularly then 2012, Virginia has become increasingly progressive, multiracial, democratic with more and more people of color coming into the electorate, right? So that's the 2017 gubernatorial, 300,000 more Democratic votes than in the, the prior year. And so that's a lot of the work that the coalition that Trump and New Virginia majority have been leading. So winning all the statewide offices in 2017, 2019, flipping control of the state uh, legislature. And for the first time, you had that unified Democratic control being able to do a whole host of progressive policies, Medicaid expansion for hundreds of thousands of people, raising the minimum wage, et cetera. So that's a whole other story there, but translating electoral power into governing, which is a whole separate, maybe do part two of this podcast. But the current challenge in the is, so there's an election this year and for the next governor. And so New Virginia majority, you guys um, have looked at the race, analyzed the different people, tried to assess in the context of continuing this progress and this work. So can you talk about where you're at, who you think should be the next governor and why you think that? Yeah. So in some less than two weeks, um, Virginians will nominate their, their democratic slate of, of folks. And, um, you know, we, we wholeheartedly put our support and our resources behind Jennifer McClellan, who is running to be, Governor of Virginia, the first black woman governor in Virginia, the first black woman governor in the country. She has for us and our community members always shown up. And I think that's really, really important, you know, showing up when there isn't a camera on her, when there's no fanfare, just to listen 
and to uh, build solutions with people and then to bring those conversations into, you know, the, the, the places where she has some decision-making authority. So she's been, she's a Cardin state Senator um, who, and she uh, has been in office for 16 years. Um, she first started out as a, a house of delegates member and is now a state Senator. And when I think about all the progress that we have made in the last two years, I mean, I've lost track, frankly, of how many first in the South pieces of legislation we passed um, in the last you know, two years since the Democratic trifecta. But if you think about every single one of those pieces, Jennifer McClellan has had a role in every single one. Um, I remember talking to a House member just a couple uh, weeks ago after one of the debates and um they were like, you know, my God, could you imagine <laughs> if we didn't have Jennifer McClellan? And I was like, I know, we would not have passed some of those bills that everybody keeps touting right now. Um, she's put in the work. She gets it. She comes, she brings a new perspective um, to the office. And when I think about being ready to govern on day one and what effective progressive governance um, ought to look like, and especially in this moment in Virginia, for us, it was a no-brainer that uh, Jennifer Collins should be our next governor. So we're yeah. in it. We're in it. And we'll see what happens uh, on June 8th. And I just do think that's one of the things that's, that's really, as I think we've alluded you know, to in the prior podcast, right? so we're working on this, uh, on this next book, looking at the progress that's been made in these different states in the context of the unrelenting uh, um, continuation of the, from the Confederates in the Civil War. And the, the the key places, the, the key elements of places that have moved forward, but both this exemplary leadership and the strong civic engagement organizations, and that if a lot more you know attention has gone to Georgia more recently, right? But what's interesting about that is that in some ways, Stacey Abrams had to build that in many ways, whereas the Tram and New Virginia Majority have built up the civic engagement infrastructure and are now working in partnership with the candidate who can hopefully be the governor to advance that advance that vision more. Tram, who are the other movers and shakers in the state of Virginia that we should know about and be paying attention to? Oh my goodness. There are a couple of people that I would drop everything <laughs> to, to, to do whatever and follow them. And uh, uh, so one person that everybody in the country should know is Delegate Marcia Price. She is phenomenal. Um, she represents the 95th district down in Hampton Roads. Um, she is also the current director of Virginia Block and has been doing organizing in um, the Black community for, for so long. Um, she's bold. She's unapologetic. She rolls up her sleeve and does the work. And it's just so amazing. So everybody should know her. Um, I think about uh, Delegate Lusherese Aird, who represents the city of Petersburg in, in Virginia, which um, if you didn't know Petersburg before this primary, you know it now because it's sort of become its own character in the Virginia gubernatorial primary. And um, she's also very unapologetic and bold in her leadership and the policies um, that she tries to implement. Uh, Delegate Kathy Tran up in uh Northern Virginia, first Vietnamese American uh, woman elected. I mean, I can name 
a whole lot of people and you'll find that they're all women of color. <laughs> I, I think um, not a coincidence. <laughs> not a coincidence. They're the ones that are say, doing the work, right? So and awesome. often unseen, but they yeah. do the work mm. and they're just yeah. they're in it for the right reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that are actually leading change in, in the Commonwealth. Well, there's so much more we would love to talk about, but there are time limitations. Um, so in a, as we close, I, you had mentioned if you could do it all over again, there are things you would do differently. You just uh, celebrated your 40th birthday last year. We're both May babies, so happy belated birthday. <laughs> happy belated birthday. You won't attach a number to my milestone. Um, <laughs> but if you could think back, I mean, what, what advice would you give your 34-year-old, 24-year-old self, knowing what you know now? I think to be comfortable in your decisions and to, you know, I have a motto now uh, that sort of reminds me it's okay, like to fail fast, right? If you fail, that's okay. And just, you know, pick up and learn from it, to not be afraid to to be bold. And, um, you know, I think my 20 some 30 some year old self had a lot of imposter syndrome Mm. and um i would you know encourage that younger self to 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 cast that aside and and be okay with uh the ambition and the power because that's how we're going to actually affect change right on yeah no it was the the, the very first time we talked when you the 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 steel in your voice when you say we're going to take that person out and I'm like, dang, this is, this is somebody <laughs> I want to I want to be friends with for a while. <laughs> so, so okay, well, thank you so much, Tram, um, for joining us and all of our listeners as well. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy and Color with Steve Phillips. If you're not already, you can follow Tram on Twitter at at tram nvm as well as you can follow new virginia majority at at new va majority and as we mentioned the election is coming up very soon and that we want to get as much support for the work of new virginia majority in this election so if you want to support them financially we'll have a link in the show notes to this episode please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast sharing with your friends tweeting at Democracy in Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to the podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. Thank you to those who have done so. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. And as we leave you, if you encounter any racism or sexism in the coming days, play the Linda Linda songs, racist, sexist boy, at least in your mind. Know that the person you're dealing with is, as the song says, a poser, riffraff, and a jerk face. Until next time, keep the faith.